All right, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Today I'm going to talk about tele-ICU, tele, uh, which uh, is a part of the practice that I'm in, um, which is like remote ICU. It's like doing intensive care remotely, like off location through cameras and stuff. And oftentimes people are like, what is that? How does that work? I'm going to tell you how it works and uh, a little bit about uh, the practice that I'm a part of. So here we go. So just backing up, I'm sure it's in the news a lot. It's been, you know, the last, I don't know, five years, particularly during the pandemic, you know, telemedicine, um, and you know, the rise of telemedicine and, and, uh, and I think it, it can still be, it's could be controversial. People don't really know what it is. Oh, is this really effective? Is this just a way of hospitals maximizing their profit and not actually having, you know, not having proper staffing and stuff. Um, and I think criticisms of telemedicine are, you know, worth considering as well. Um, but I do think it has a lot of advantages and I think it does help out it. It, what here, basically the basic, Obviously, it's remote, right? You know, just boiling it down, what are the basic concepts of telemedicine? Uh, it's remote care where a provider is off-site, right? They're, maybe they're on the other side of the country. And they are interacting with a patient by, you know, live camera feed and obviously talking to them. Um, and then having access to the patient's medical record, to their electronic medical record in their chart. And then you know, helping with decision-making remotely that in it's, in it's a, uh, you know, most basic sense, that's what telemedicine is. And that's what, te- you know, tele-intensive care, tele-ICU is as well. Now the rise of tele-ICU, it really, so I, during the pandemic, um, it was extremely important to have tele-ICU. It, tele-ICU, you know, medicine is not everywhere. Not every institution has them. Uh, for sure, it's it's completely kind of uh, just all over the place what institutions provide tele-ICU and what, what institutions do not. Um, but typically, it, there's like a central hub of providers and nurses, like, you know, NPs and PAs and physicians and then ICU nurses. So now, mo- mo- all of my discussion here is talking about tele-ICU. There, there's other types of telemedicine, right? Telepsychiatry, all this, you know, different things. Um, and that central site, that physical site, can the camera in and can consult with multiple other locations that have the hardware and infrastructure to receive, you know, the, the services, right? So you can have one central location and they are providing services to many, many locations. So in the practice that I'm a part of that, that is the case. We provide, um, tele ICU to multiple sites within the same state and out of the state as well. Now, particularly during COVID-19, uh, the the cert the really the really bad portion of the pandemic, um, the early phases and Omicron and Delta, there were I mean if you recall back in New York where they were completely overwhelmed with infections and then that happened played out on similar scales throughout the rest of the country. What the issue was that many people don't, I mean a lot of people do realize but not everybody, is that the ICU beds were completely overrun, not overrun. That's the wrong, that's the wrong term. They were, they were filled to capacity with COVID patients and, um, ICUs like, like one institution, all of their ICUs would have COVID patients. Like my institution during, I remember very clearly during Delta and Omicron, we had COVID patients in literally every type of ICU at my large academic center, every, in our cardiac ICU and our medical ICU and our, uh, you know, surgical ICU, we had COVID patients literally in the ICU intensive care, um, often, uh, and many, many of them have needing a ventilator. So when you have that many patients in an ICU, you are now displacing other patients and you're having a spillover effect of very sick patients all over your hospital and where to house them and then how to staff them. 
And critical care is a particular branch of medicine that you need to be trained, you know, you're specifically trained in and experienced in to be able to do. So what was going on in New York and other places is you had uh, physicians that were not trained in critical care who were the main physician taking care of COVID patients, um, vented patients, treating them for ARDS. So tele-ICU really came in to help provide guidance to these providers, right? You have, if you have like a, a, someone who's not trained in these things, a, a physician, they needed help. Uh, and it was wanted help. Like they, they, they needed help. And so tele-ICU really absolutely provided that guidance to then to, for an intensive care team, the ICU nurses and NPs and PAs and, and, and you know, an ICU physician to look at a patient's chart and to give guidance and even go on rounds with each and every patient um, remotely. And that was invaluable help. That I, I know that my institution was a part of that and other institutions were, and it was a, I, I know that saved patients' lives and it provided very timely uh, and needed gui- uh, medical guidance for, for patients. So that was a tremendous and incredible use of tele-ICU medicine during that time. So in my opinion, so tele-ICU is not a worse version of real intensive care. It is, it is, uh, it is, the care that someone would normally get, and it's augmented by having an, uh, an ICU team to be able to help out. What do I what I mean by this is, I think the the perfect setup for for tele ICU medicine is you have a small you have a small hospital that has maybe a small bed ICU like you know ten beds or something, and in a part of the country that has a smaller population, and now intensive care. Uh, physicians and MPs and PAs are kind of, they're, they're not, there's not a lot around, right? <laughs> if you look at the country, like we, you know, there's doctor shortages and provider shortages everywhere. So there's not a lot around. So you don't, you can't always stat every ICU, right? In, in the United States, obviously I'm just talking about us medicine here. Um, in the, every ICU is not, there's not an uh, intensivist for every ICU that's out there. And some people, so let's say we're talking about like a rural, small town that has like a, but it, uh, it has a ICU. Now there are some people that are sick, but they're not super sick and they can be admitted to an ICU like that. And it can be run by a non um, intensivist um, provider, uh, typically like, uh, like a hospitalist, which is a internal medicine trained physician or an NP or a PA. And they can provide good, uh, you know, quality critical care, assuming that the, the patient's needs are not that high meaning they're, they're not, their acuity and how sick they are, they, they, it matches the care that can be provided. And it's not just, it's not just a experience and skills I'm talking about. It's also resources that that hospital has. Like, does it have respiratory therapy? Does it ha- does it have the staff there to also support how sick that patient is? If I'm making any sense. Um, so, so the, a good setup for this is a hospital system like that that has a small bed ICU and someone has, say they're admitted with like hyponatremia, right? They, they have low sodium and it needs to be corrected. Now that's an easy thing to correct any, you know, an experienced, a, 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 like a hospitalist provider can, can do that in their sleep. Um, and having an, uh, an, an intensive care team remotely be able to also uh, counsel with that patient and counsel with that team just as, a, just as like a backup, that's good. That, that you're augmenting that patient's care team, you're augmenting it. So it's not lesser care provided, you're actually providing them better care. And then because you have an ICU team at your disposal somewhere in another part of the country or part of the state, 
You can also, if something, if they get worse, you can be like, hey, I think this patient's worse. I think our facility cannot handle them um, because we don't have the resources. I think they should be transferred out. And so you can count, we can counsel with an, uh, you know, they can counsel with an intensive care team to arrange for maybe this patient needs to be transported. So it's like a, it's like a backup team for the, already the medically appropriate team for the acuity of what's going on with that patient, if that makes sense. So a big part of my job as an intensivist in a, in a tele-ICU practice, which is a very small part of my practice. Uh, we have, at my institution, we have a very robust um, tele-ICU practice, which is it's, mo- it's the most robust I've ever seen. It's, it's uh, quite phenomenal. Um, and I practice in it every now and then. So it's not like, it's not all the critical care I do. I'm usually in the cardiac ICU, which I may have already mentioned in this podcast. I'm forgetting. Anyway, um, so a big part of my job as the remote tele-ICU intensivist is triaging. Right. For those that aren't familiar, triaging is figuring figuring out who is the most sick and who needs the, the highest level of care. And, you know, it's a, in its basic sense, that's what triaging is. It's an enormous part of my job, um, and even more so during the during the pandemic. So, a big part of, part of my job is when a patient gets admitted to a re- remote center. Um, that's part of the health system I'm a part of, or or not. We've also covered. Uh, places that are not necessarily a part of our health system, but we have contracts with them. So a big part of my job is to, I review the patient's chart, right? And again, I, I, I know I've already said this and it's obvious, this is all remote. I'm, I am literally sitting at a bunch of computers, at a bunch of screens, at a computer doing all these things. So I review a patient's chart, their labs, um, and try to read the tea leaves <laughs> in their chart, right? Uh, a patient's chart has variable information. Some of it's very useful. Some of it is not. Some, sometimes it gives a nice bit of the picture. Sometimes you're missing a big piece of pieces of the puzzle. Um, so I'm alerted that a patient is getting admitted to a higher level care at this at the center or the intensive care or a progressive care unit, and maybe they're a little sick. And as maybe I already mentioned, sorry, I'm recording this like weeks later, so I forget what I already said in the last like 10 minutes. Um, some of it is like, oh, you know, they're just they're just being admitted with hyponatremia you know, low sodium, which, uh, which is very routine, you know, basically protocolized management at this point. And the, the provider there, which is typically a hospitalist, of course, doesn't need my help with that. And the hospitalists rarely need my help with anything, um, except with people that are getting worse and their acuity is getting worse. And maybe they need help with, Hey, should we transfer this patient out and managing them as they become critic more as they decompensate? I think that's where I have uh, me personally, you know, as the intensivist. Now, there's a whole nursing side of this, right? There's the, as I already mentioned, I work alongside tele ICU nurses, and they they also help with the nursing staff and they give nursing breaks and things like that. So they, they also have a job that is also extremely valuable and different than my job is, and they also um, accompany me with the treatment of sick patients remotely as well. Um, and also nurse practitioners and f- physician assistants are also a part of this practice that I'm, that I'm mentioning. Anyway, so a big part of my job is to triage. So, uh, okay, I, I look at a patient's chart and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is basic hypertremia. And then I'll talk to the provider there and be like, yeah, okay, it looks good. I, I don't really have much to say. And I'll also video into the room, into the patient's room. Now, this can sometimes be alarming <laughs> to patients. Because these patients, the, so there's a lot of big infrastructure in place here, right? The patients have a screen and they have a camera in all of the rooms. And it's extremely high resolution cameras. So I can zoom into these patients' rooms. 
I can zoom it all the way in. I can see the readings on the vent ventilator. I can see all the readings on all the pumps, the vitals. Like it has really good resolution. So I, I really, you know, you kind of think like, oh, you, it's you're not really there. Well, yeah, you're obviously you're not there. But actually, with a high resolution camera, I actually, and then with a patient's chart in front of me, and I can also bring up the patient's vitals. I, I can get all the information from that patient's room as if I'm standing there, except I can't do a physical exam, right? And I'm, and I also don't have the presence quite the presence of being there physically, but there's a lot of information I can get, especially with that high resolution camera. So I will camera into the patient's room and I will, you know, talk to them if they're coherent um, and see how they're doing. Sometimes it's very brief because I don't have a lot to add and that's totally fine. Sometimes it's a little more detailed. And I'm also at this point, I'm like probably the fifth provider or something for third, fourth, fifth, let's talk to them. They're kind of like over it. So I don't try to bug them too much. And I already know a ton of the information. So I don't go into enormous detail, history and physical, because I don't need to. And um, I already have that information. So a lot of times it's just really routine. And I don't, I don't, and I say, you know what, I, you know, I'm in the background if I'm needed for anything. And I, and I'm off more often than not, I'm not needed for anything. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that could be my, that's it for, for my interaction with that patient. It's when things start going bad that, uh, that I actually, I feel like I have meaningful intervention. So, so here's, let's, well, I'll give an example. There's a patient who came in, um, in alcohol withdrawals, right? Very typical admission for like, particularly like a smaller community hospital. Um, so alcohol withdrawal, you know, it's pretty basic management. You give people benzos, you watch them for um, DTs and withdrawal symptoms and seizure symptoms and you keep them safe you keep them safe you keep staff safe as well because sometimes these patients can be combative and aggressive because they're so out of it so anyway there was a patient that was admitted with pretty routine alcohol withdrawal and then like a day later she started to go into um like blood pressure was low and heart rate was high which was like ah she in fact she wasn't intubated or anything like, I don't know what's going on here. So over the course of an hour, she really started to get worse. And over that course of that hour, I was I was cameraed into the patient's room the entire time because she clearly was not doing well um, based on her vitals. Her blood pressure started to drop. She needed vasoactive, you know, like I don't even remember, norepinephrine, phenylephrine, something like that. So we were giving those things. And uh, the patient had also received an echo. And, uh, and this is a relatively young patient. Um, you know, like middle-aged and uh, an echocardiogram, a patient had an echocardiogram and her EF or ejection fraction was quite low. It was like 25%, which was unexpected. The patient did, had never been diagnosed with cardiomyopathy or a low, basically her heart was weak and it wasn't pumping very well. And so it was like, it was coming pretty obvious that this patient was in new uh, decompensated cardiogenic shock. And I think she was probably walking around with her SVR, her systemic vascular resistance, through the roof, compensating for her um, poor pump. And and then we had sedated her with like dexmedetomidine or Presidex and benzos to prevent withdrawals. And that took her SVR away from her. Um, you know, the resistance of her vascular system, it, it took that away at sedate, by virtue of sedating her and, and the, the pharmacological action of the medications like Presidex. And it dropped her, and that was dropping her blood pressure, and it was pushing her into shock. And so it was during this time, and she needed to be intubated, right? So I'm I'm there present. I'll, okay, I got another story too. I'll share in a minute. Um, so I was there, cameraed in while um, 
uh, and I think it was an ED or anesthesia provider came up and did the intubation. But I'm also there to help out with, you know, hey, what induction? I'm just an extra set of hands, you know, an extra brain there, right? Which is always good for the patients. Now, maybe that might ruffle providers' uh, feathers in the room that are providing direct care to have someone, uh, quote, you know, watching over their shoulder. And if that's their perception, honestly, that's their, that's their problem. It's not my problem. The more eyes on a patient, I don't care what setting, the better. It doesn't matter. The ego, I don't really care about someone's ego. It doesn't matter. I would love if someone, if I, as an intensivist in every room I was treating a patient, that there was someone cameraed in somewhere also helping. That would be fantastic. Um, so anyway, if, you know, if you work in tele-ICU, if you're listening to this, and people are like, oh, they're kind of bothered by you, that's their problem. It's their problem. It's not, it's not your problem. Uh, anyway, what was I getting at? Oh, yeah. So it was like, so I was there present helping with intubation. And then it was like, okay, we obviously need to bring this patient to the main camp, our main academic center campus because they're becoming way unstable. They're on multiple pressors. They're now intubated. They're in decompensated cardiogenic shock, I suspect. They need to go to our cardiac ICU for stabilization. And then if things don't get better, you know, for further workup for, for maybe advanced mechanical circulatory support or something like that. So I arranged that transport, which can take a long time, right? So a big part of my job in tele was communicating with others and communicating with lots and lots of different personalities and lots of different personalities who are in different phases of their day, <laughs> meaning sometimes they're a little more stressed. Sometimes they don't really have tolerance to talk to someone like me. So I have to navigate that a lot, which is totally fine. Um, yeah. Okay, and then I want to share. I want to share something else. During the pandemic, this is so. This was so awful. What I'm about to share to you, just oh, okay. So, during the height of the pandemic, Omicron Delta, it, the COVID patients were falling out of every, every. Everybody had COVID. Everybody had COVID. All calls I was getting, uh, I was getting calls all over, across many states with help for COVID and transferring. COVID. Hey, this patient's really sick. We need to bring them. We need to bring that him or her to you. All that constantly, constantly. Okay, so hospitals have something called diversion. When when your bed when a hospital's bed capacity gets too full. So okay, so major tertiary care centers like where I work at in the United States, we accept transfers right from other, and that's a big part of my job is is um, triaging, accepting transfers from from different states, lots of different hospitals. That's a big part of my job. So. Uh, being able to glean information, talk to providers and see, you know, is this patient appropriate for transfer or not? So, uh, what was I saying? So I was getting calls all the time. Hey, so, oh yeah. yeah. So diversion. So we'll go into uh, hospitals will go on diversion, meaning we're too full. We can't hear about any, we can't take any transfers right now. So it could, because we're on diversion. So that's routine. That's like a basic thing in, in major economic centers or, or major hospitals. <clears throat> to go on diversion. So when we're on diversion, I don't even hear, I don't even take phone calls from our, uh, from other centers for transfer. Cause there's no point because we can't accept them. So I don't even hear the story. Right. So, so I'm like the gatekeeper about if a patient's going to get transferred to our center. Yeah, and this is all about, this is intensive care. Uh, mostly actually I, it's also, it's more than intensive care too, but anyway, I don't want to <clears throat> bore you with the details. So uh, what was I saying? So, during Delta and Omicron, it's just there was every one of our ICUs, right? Our medical ICUs, cardiac ICUs, cardiothoracic uh, ICUs, cardiovascular ICUs, uh, they all had COVID patients, which is unheard of, right? In our modern age of medicine, to have one infectious disease causing critical illness in every ICU, that's insane, okay? 
Now we're we're past that, right? That 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 phase will never happen again. But it it was awful, and um, and it it directly had to do with poor mitigation factors, for sure, uh, and poor public policy. I, I without a doubt in my mind, and poor vaccine uh, um, uptake. I know that without a doubt. Does I don't care what anyone reads, whatever bullshit they read online, right? I, I know that without a doubt. That if vaccination uptake were better. And if people adhere to better public, if there was better public policy across the place of, of mitigation factors, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been as bad. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? I keep getting, oh yeah, so diversion. Okay, so during this period, I was triaging a bunch of patients with COVID. We would go on diversion and then I would stop hearing about, it. I wouldn't get any calls from our transfer center, right? There's a bunch of nurses in a transfer center that are also helping with these phone calls. At the minute, the minute we would come off diversion, my phone was going off the hook constantly with, hey, I have this patient. And, and here's, it wasn't just COVID patients. Okay, so it wasn't just, oh, oh, we have a patient, they're on a ventilator, they're dying, can they come to you? It wasn't just that, it was that. But as soon as the, we came with diversion, I would hear, I have a patient that is in the emergency department in the hallway, in my hallway, in the emergency department who needs urgent dialysis. I can't offer dialysis. No center will take them. They're going to die if they don't get dialysis. Do you know how insane that is for someone to be in a hallway? And this is no fault of the provider who's talk, talking to me that everything was full. There's nowhere to transfer the patient from States and States away all, simply because they needed dialysis. And, and I was like, now I normally am not going to take a patient just because they need dialysis because they can get it elsewhere. But under these circumstances, I had to bring the patient because they were going to die. Okay. So I was like, yeah, of course, I'm going to bring this patient. So I, you know, accepted the patient. We had, I had space for the patient just to get dialysis. Do you, and then we went back on diversion. So do you know how many people were just sitting in hospital somewhere dying of things that were preventable or treated because they couldn't get transferred? So that just, they did. People without a doubt, without non-patients without COVID, without a doubt died because they did not get expedited care that they need because hospitals were surging with capacity. That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. I saw it firsthand. I saw it many, many, many times. So this patient I was thinking, I was like, wow, if we were still in diversion, I wouldn't have heard about this patient. And this patient potentially could have just died in a hall of an emergency department because they needed dialysis. See how insane that is? Oh, seriously. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Um, that, that is really what was going on. So there's, you know, there's so much disinformation and nonsense everywhere about, but the, I, I'm telling you firsthand, I was there. This, this, these, these things were happening. People were dying needlessly um, because hospitals were full of unvaccinated patients when the vaccines were available. Absolutely insane. It's just a, it's a, and I'm not, I'm not blaming um, the, of people that died, the uh, unvaccinated people that died, even though if they refused it, they refused the vaccine. They were, you know, they were just victims of, of political disinformation that politicized the pandemic and politicized the vaccines. And this still goes on today. And obviously you can tell I'm pretty pissed about it and upset. And I still make TikTok videos trying to educate people. Anyway, so that gives you just a glimpse of you know what that was all about. Anyway, I, I don't really have that much more to say about tele-ICU. I think it's cool practice. If you're listening, you're part of practice. Hello. I think you're awesome. So I, there's a lot of criticism about, I mean, there can be criticism about tele-ICU, like, oh, it's just a, it's a hospital's way of uh, generating more revenue and without, 
you know, actually, you know, without actually having a in-room provider and things like that. And all that criticism, I don't think it's unfounded, <clears throat> right? This can apply to a lot of tele services like, you know, psychiatric telemedicine or cardiology telemedicine, whatever. I'm just bringing those, I'm going to bring up those examples, not because for any specific reason. So I think that may be true. I think that criticism is not unfounded, right? This is a way to uh, generate more revenue with uh, with less providers. Uh, but it, I don't know what to say. It also helps. This, this strategy also helps. It also expands care in an, in an age of shortage of healthcare providers. So it's probably all those things all at once. Probably, probably. Um, and I'm not super knowledgeable about the rest of the logistics of tele IC and stuff. You know, I just kind of show up and sit in a chair and, and do my best um, along with my other colleagues. And, I, and I'm happy to be part of the practice. I think it's, I think it's service that we do. I think it's a good service um, to patients. I think it's good that, that it, that we have it, that exists. And, uh, I think it, I think tele IC should be expanded and I think it should be done safely and appropriately. It should not supplant, um, ICU care for very, very sick patients, right? It should not, you need in-person intensivists and an intensive care team for major uh, high acuity critical care. Obviously, obviously. Okay. I'm gonna move on to answering a question. Um, this is from someone on TikTok named Azans, and their question is, what can a med student do on an ICU rotation to stand out, like advice for a med student? So for me, a medical student on an ICU rotation. So for one thing, it's very new uh, to medical students. Uh, and if it's not new, they've probably had limited experience in the ICU, and it's an extremely intimidating place for a medical student. I remember being very intimidated by the <laughs> intensive care unit. I'd be like, ugh, you know, it's it's like a medically complex kind of not scary but just like very intimidating place so the fact that you're even showing up and wanting to be in an icu is great like that's impressive enough because <laughs> not all med students have to do icu rotations depending on where you go to school so anyway uh so i mean I'm, I'm impressed right at the bat that you're showing up so there's you know the standard things like you know just you know being on time and not showing up halfway through rounds with a cup of coffee in your hands, right? All, you know, you got to avoid those things. Those, those things leave uh, bad impressions. And impressions matter, unfortunately. They do. Um, but anyway, to really to impress, which unfortunately, I, I hate that we have to, like, talk this way and, and be evaluated by how much you impress people. But anyway, that's just the fundamentals of our medical education system. Wh what I'm impressed with is when medical students, um, they know their patients well that's th that's number one if you know your patients well so you know you have whatever how many patients you have assigned two or three you and you don't need to like memorize their chart right you don't have to know all their labs and everything off the top of their head but but understanding the global picture of what's going on with the patient that's impressive because that's a hard thing to do as a medical student when you're a medical student you get so bogged down and lost in the little details and you kind of um partition off each detail as if like, okay, well, their their lab values were this and this and this, um, and they're also in kidney failure. Maybe they have some esoteric kidney disease that we've never heard of. Uh, no, it's probably their heart failure that's causing their kidney failure. Like it's not that thing that you studied last week. Very unlikely. So medicines have a tendency to silo off the different body organ systems, and to and they struggle. Not not all medicines, but sometimes. They struggle thinking more globally about the patient. <clears throat> and then they also struggle thinking about what is the overall plan? Can you sum up 
the plan for this patient in one sentence today. That's impressive. And even though patients are complex, particularly in the cardiac ICU where, where I spend most of my intensive care time, these are complex patients. But you should be able to, for that day, be like, basically, the patient has this, this, and this. Today we're going to do this. And the overall plan is this. You should be able to do that in a sentence. You can do that for any patient. It doesn't matter how complex they are. Because <clears throat> when you're synthesizing and, and understanding information and assimilating your brain, trying to come up with a plan, you it takes experience. You need to know what is pertinent information and what is not pertinent information. And that is a difficult thing for medical students, particularly medical students in an unformulated environment, meaning everything is new. You don't you haven't created mental heuristics and shortcuts to understand things. You don't know what is extraneous information now. Maybe it was very important three days ago, but now it's extraneous. That is hard for medical students. So if a medical student is able to synthesize all that information, understand what is important, what is not important, synthesize a plan, and then understand their patients from a global perspective and be able to talk about their patients um, in a non-mechanical way, but in a more, I don't know, just a more uh, holistic way, that's impressive. Because um, not all medicines do that in the in the ICU. Many medicines do that in other services, right? But they, sometimes the ICU is just a little more difficult. So that stands out. Knowing your patients and understanding the global plan, and then asking questions. Uh, just that's impressive. You should ask questions because you should have questions. If you're a medical student in the ICU, you are going to have questions. You do not understand everything out intensive care. I don't care if you're at the end of your fourth year of medical school. That you you need to be asking questions. Um, and then never assuming anything and never doing something without that you're not unsure of and you're too afraid to ask. To me, I, maybe I've said it before, that's the only mistake a medical student, a, a true mistake a medical student can make is acting when they were unsure and they were too afraid to ask. That's bad. That to me is, that's, that needs remediation. That's something that needs remediation. Uh, but anyway, that's the, and that's a, what I'm saying is a hard thing to do knowing your patients is a hard thing to do. That's why it's impressive because not all medicines do this. And it takes time. It takes experience to be able to do that. But I've seen it and, it, and it's impressive. Um, yeah, there you go. There's my answer. All right, today let's let's get back. Let's get into some books. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about one nonfiction and one fiction. And I think you should hear about both these books. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about sci-fi or fantasy or anything today. So I think you should stay to the end of this. Um, so I'm sorry that I have to talk about this book with you um but you need to know if you don't already the things that occurred in china at the hands of the uh japan japanese empire in like around 1932 <clears throat> the book is called the rape of nanking it's by iris Cheng, um and it was written in 1997 it's about 300 pages so i i put off reading this book for years because uh, I had a pretty good idea of the horror that was wreaked upon China during the Second Sino-Japanese War and the, the particular massacre, uh, basically Holocaust and the widespread rape of the people of Nanking in 1938 is when this happened. So Iris Chang, um, she boldly opens the reader's eyes into the war crimes and crimes against humanity executed by the Japanese Empire during that time. Somewhere between 200 and 300,000 civilians were murdered by Japanese soldiers, and around 80,000 women were raped. Chang does not hold back on the descriptions of body horror and torture that happened during this time. I will spare you those descriptions, but they're vivid, um, and you can't forget 
the things that are described. So you shouldn't read this book if that's going to be a problem for you. Uh, but this book isn't just recognizing the horrors that occurred. It's also about some really incredible individuals using their political clout to help save many thousands of Chinese within the city during this time. You get the story of, an, of a Nazi named John Rabe, R-A-B-E. Um, and he was, he was part of the Nazi party, and he lived in Nanking in China. And he was elected the leader of the Nanking Safety Zone, which helped save thousands of Chinese. He was elected because of his political status and Nazi influence at that time. Rabe also opened up his properties to save refugees. Cheng did more research to figure out what happened to this guy. When he returned to Germany, he lectured about the massacre and even sent his research to Hitler to make him aware of the war crimes. He was promptly arrested and reprimanded. He eventually became destitute later in his life, um, but he did receive some recognition by many Chinese uh, scholars later in his life who helped care for him. You also get the story of a, a, a man named Robert Wilson, an American. He was the only surgeon who stayed in the city during the massacre to help the Chinese victims. So there's this really amazing subplots going on of, of these very incredible individuals. Um, the, this book also contains a scathing reprimand of the Gi Japanese empire and later government that failed to fully recognize the war crimes committed and withholding of reparations like that were done in modern Germany. The massacre in Nanking is a forgotten holocaust which was purposely suppressed not only by Japan but the U.S. when they later wanted an ally with Japan against Soviet forces in Russia and Korea. So reading this book, you and this book is just incredible. The author is amazing. She later um, committed suicide, uh, unfortunately, but uh, this book is extremely influential and has helped many, many people understand what, what happened in Nanking during this time. So when you read a book like this, you ask yourself, how could this happen? In my opinion, it's the system that was created. Bad systems create bad people, by and large, in my opinion. The Japanese empire sought ethnic and cultural authority over all of Asia with likely global ambitions. So when you debase the humanity of your soldiers, you rob them of their own lives, and you unleash them on a vulnerable and conquered people, you get genocide and crimes against humanity. That's when you dehumanize your soldiers, they dehumanize their victims. Government systems matter, and that is the highest lesson for me from this book. These crimes can happen anywhere when certain conditions are met. And for me, these are the conditions, and they're not just isolated to this, but these are the conditions. <clears throat> Authoritarian rule, a vulnerable populace, economic downturns, and then the geopolitical conditions that ripen for war. Those are the conditions you need to watch for. Um, I think that's when stuff like this happens, when you have those conditions. I would argue that current humanity has not graduated away from these conditions. And what happened in Nanking, it can happen now. War crimes can and are happening right now, in fact. So this book's called The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang. Uh, reader beware, do not read this if uh, what I've described to you is not like, don't you'll know if you shouldn't read this book, but you should know about it. Okay. And then I'm just going to tell you about another book that I just read recently. And it's one of the best fiction books I've ever read. Okay. Mo uh, modern, like recent. And it was published this year. It's called wellness, just wellness by Nathan Hill. <clears throat> it was published in September, 2023. And it's about 600 pages. So it's a long fiction book, modern day fiction book. And to me, this is, incredible fiction that defines our current era 
It's one of the best novels I've ever read. This is fiction that is so well written and so relevant to modern life that it defines the current zeitgeist with, with its story. It's a book most concretely about a marriage between uh, characters Jack and Elizabeth. And it's told over a, like a kaleidoscope narration of when the couples meet in college and then 20 years later when their marriage has been predictably calcified and now complicated by a child and all the other highly relatable, relatable stressors of life. This story has some of the most fleshed out characters I've ever read. Nathan Hill takes his time telling the backstory of these two extremely traumatized individuals, and he does it with wit, humor, drama, and it's extremely engaging. Um, he's The author is an absolute brilliant writer and storyteller, and this book will draw you in with the first sentence, and it'll keep you there until the last sentence, I promise. <clears throat> I, I laughed a ton reading this, and I definitely cried listening to the audiobook which was a phenomenal performance. I recommend the audiobook. The very ending of this book left me, seriously, I was just crying. <clears throat> I was on my way to work, and I was just, I had tears at the end of the book. How the backstory of the two main characters informs their current actions and their relationship with one another is simply one of the best things I've ever read. This book is a perfect picture of life in the 2010s, and now. In a generation when people want to know what life was like for like an adult right now, particularly married and with children, they should read this book and they'll get a very good glimpse. This book is about the fracturing that has occurred, a fracturing of individuals because of like the failure of their parents and communities and traditions, the fracturing of society into rural and coastal elites, a fracturing of our attention by the dis disruption of surveillance capitalism, which has been shoehorned through social media. It's also about a fracturing of understanding one another and the alienation that is imposed upon us by a default culture that has been hollowed out and atomized for monetization. This book is about the endless, quote, life hacks, right? That only mask the deeper issues that people have and obfuscate the solutions which are developing deeper connections with one another with compassion and understanding. But don't get me wrong, this book is not, it's not just about cynicism. This book is about so much more than just being cynical over society or cynical of marriage. This book is about the hope of pioneering into a new era. And with that hope, the compulsion to try and understand where we are and how to move forward together, knowing that life is more about coping than about trying to obtain certainty. That was my kind of take home from this book. The author is a very smart guy. And he brought a lot of concepts that you can tell he wants to talk about. He uses this book as an opportunity to riff on lots of social and cultural issues, and he does it with a lot of style and humor and compassion. This book has one of the best takes on Facebook and social media I've ever read. Like the relationship with Jack and his dad, and they argue on Facebook a whole bunch. It's, it is hilarious and extreme. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I honestly I cannot recommend this book enough. I've been thinking about it every day since I, I last read it. It's kind of hard to read. I think a trigger warning would be whatever you're having trouble with in life right now, it's probably going to be found in this book, and it might kind of trigger you to be like, ugh. You might think this book is cynical, and it might depress you, but I promise you it's the ending is quite beautiful. Um, I think this book is a balm for the modern soul. Um, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. You pick it up. It's called Wellness by Nathan Hill. Anyway, that's it. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, you can email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com if you want to say anything to me. Uh, you can follow me on TikTok. Doctor is my handle. On Instagram, it's icudoctortiktok. 
And that's it. Thanks for listening. Leave a review and share this podcast with somebody so to help it grow. Thank you.